This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora, good evening. It is one of the biggest issues facing our generation and now the government's made another move to make our country a climate leader. The goal is for New Zealand to be one of the first in the world to have 100% renewable electricity generation. TVNZ's Simon Dallow last Tuesday with the story that was leading One News at 6 that night and he made it sound pretty significant. Now, the fact that it's also a partnership with a huge and hugely controversial US investment fund led RNZ's news at the same time. A fund management company has warned the government it should be conscious of the motivations of the US investment giant it has struck a deal with. And that plan was also a political shot in the upcoming election campaign. But Three's News Hub at 6 that night led instead with this. Tēnā tātou kato. good evening. National leader Christopher Luxon is not ruling out banning mobile phones in schools. He teased the policy during a school visit in Hamilton. Where he also appeared to stumble on one very simple question, how to spell cat. On Midweek Media Watch this week, our weekly catch-up with Knights, Hayden Donnell took a look at that and how election fever is affecting the news agenda already elsewhere. And he also looked at how the media hounded a mayor's dog out of office in the capital. Midweek Media Watch is on the RNZ website or you'll find it in our podcast feed if you missed it. But that same day on News Talk ZB, last Tuesday, the lead story was different again. Auckland police have arrested a man in relation to a fatal shooting in Point England on Saturday and say more arrests are likely. Well, that development certainly was newsworthy, especially in News Talk ZB's biggest market in the big smoke. But it also led the news bulletin because they know that stories about serious crime really engage the audience. Just 24 hours earlier, News Hub at 6 had kicked off with this. Crime is said to be a major election issue and News Hub can reveal Labour's losing that battle. Despite the continuous stream of announcements to tackle the ram raid problem, our latest News Hub read research poll shows a clear majority of Kiwis think the government's failing to get on top of it. And political editor Jenna Lynch summed up the dilemma those exclusive poll numbers gave the Prime Minister. I think the public can have confidence that we acknowledge their concern around things like ram raids and escalation and gang tensions and that we are doing something about it. Hoping, wishing, praying that the first step to solving the problem is acknowledging you have one. But do our media also have a problem that they don't often acknowledge? The strong public opinions about crime, which they harvest for news stories, are also shaped by what people see and hear in the media and they don't often play down the scourge of crime. For instance, earlier this month, News Habit 6 screened this. Auckland cameraman Tim Raythal has been covering overnight breaking news for News Hub for 17 years. He says he's never seen crime as bad as it is now. It looks like things could be ramping up again. Yeah, well, what do I say? It's not surprising. I mean, the last couple of years in Auckland, it's just been crazy. And cameraman Tim Raythal's video diary was interrupted by reporter Amanda Gillies making this claim. Everyday good Kiwis. And the toll, it's huge. It's mental, financial, physical. And it seems there's no sign of it slowing down. Some offences are slowing down, though you wouldn't know it from reports like that one, in which the opposition police spokesperson Mark Mitchell insisted that, in fact, the media aren't making enough of crime. The media are reporting exactly what crime is happening. And by the way, after what you've seen, they're actually underreporting. There's a lot more violent crime and a lot more violence happening in our communities and our cities around the country that's going unreported. Around the same time, the Capital's daily paper The Post said that the current fear of crime is not simply a moral panic. And that thought was echoed at the same time by Heather Duplessy-Allen in The Herald on Sunday. 
Public frustration is valid, she insisted, and... People, especially in Auckland, seem to be genuinely afraid that the crime they're reading about will walk in through their back door one night. And after listing several recent headline-making offences, Heather Duplessis-Allen added this. If you prefer numbers to anecdotes, data released recently puts in numbers how the public feels about crime. Now here, Heather Duplessis-Allen had in mind the annual police survey of public perceptions and the recent Ipsos Monitor poll, in which 40% of respondents named crime as a top three concern for them. And that was also cited at the time by Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass on Stuff's daily podcast, Newsable. Yeah, well, I mean, the politics of law and order are a mixture of um, evidence and emotion. Um, and I, th- I think the fact that crime has been has been popping up as a as a consistent um, problem for people, it's not a result of a, of a political beat up. You know, people out there, particularly up in Auckland, um, feel are feeling crime. They feel it's close to them. They feel it is affecting people that uh, that they know. It is what people feel real. Another recent episode of Newsable asked criminologist Trevor Bradley. In the local area, regardless of whether it was a high crime community or not, because they had access to lots of different sources of information, including talking to neighbours and friends and colleagues or whatever, they had a much you know, better appreciation of the kind of level of risks that they were exposed to. Whereas when we asked them about their perceptions of crime in other parts of the country, they were much more inclined to say that, yes, that's a big problem. Mm. Why? Well, because they were relying on national media, essentially. And so their picture of crime was not experiential. It was totally kind of learned or gleaned from the media. So if people's perception of crime, informed by the media, is out of whack with reality, and political parties are in turn responding to that with hastily assembled election policies, what should the media do? Back in 2018, the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group, Te Uepu Hapai Te Ora, chaired by the late Chester Burroughs, asked itself what would achieve the best possible crime and justice reporting. And it hired two senior journalists, David Fisher and Jonathan Milne, to write more than 200 pages on that. Now sadly, their report never saw the light of day, but Media Watch's Hayden Donnell has read it and talked to the authors. Picture this, an election is looming and one of the electorate's top concerns is seemingly out of control crime. Pressure groups are hammering the message that offenders are getting off lightly. They've got support from National, which is repeatedly accusing the incumbent Labour government of being soft on crime. Expert evidence-based analysis of criminal justice is increasingly drowned out in the media by a clamour for more punitive penal measures. On the back foot and losing the public debate, Labour starts talking up legislative changes to lengthen sentences and increase penalties for the types of crimes receiving the most publicity. I'm talking, of course, about the 2002 general election, when the Sensible Sentencing Trust and National Party leader Bill English spearheaded a tough-on-crime narrative following a number of high-profile murders. If all that sounds familiar, it's because in the justice debate, history repeats and everything old becomes new again. We've been having many of these same discussions for decades, from the 1990 election where the National Party campaigned on a return to a decent society to the upcoming one in October. All that history is spelled out in detail in a 227-page report titled 
Developing Good Practice in Criminal Justice and Journalism. It was commissioned in 2018 by the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group to Uepu Hapai Ita Order and was written by Jonathan Milne, the current editor of Newsroom Pro and former editor of the Sunday Star Times, and David Fisher, a senior journalist at the New Zealand Herald and former chief reporter at the Herald on Sunday. The report delivers a series of recommendations for better practice on crime and justice reporting in the hope that news organisations might avoid some of the iffy practices of the past. It calls for reporters to include context and facts about crime to explain the why rather than just the what and the how. In the author's eyes, that means doing sometimes difficult stuff, like including the voices of offenders and the breadth of crime coverage. Other recommendations include a call to give reporters access to a toolkit of crime statistics and research summaries, ensuring more diversity in our newsrooms, and trying to make coverage of violent crime more proportionate to the frequency with which it actually occurs. It even gets into the nitty-gritty of reporting terminology, urging journalists to avoid crime clichés such as blood-spattered, slaughter or outrage where possible. All these things might have helped foster a more nuanced, informed public debate ahead of our current election. But the report was never released by the Ministry of Justice and only found its way into the hands of Media Watch through unofficial channels. That seems a shame. I asked one of the report's authors, Jonathan Milne, and the person who commissioned it, University of Canterbury Senior Lecturer and Director of Criminal Justice, Dr Jared Gilbert, to explain its contents and how they might be applied during election season. Oh, it's remarkable. In fact, I did a, um, another piece of research just re- uh, recently, just last year actually, where I looked at some gang laws that were produced before the uh, election in the mid-1990s, 1996, which was the first MMP election. So National was in um, power, Labour in opposition. Labour pressures the government that is initially resistant, um, but then folds and it all becomes about um, how tough we can get, and we are seeing that. It details 2002 as well, which seems almost like an identical dynamic where uh, you have pressure on tough on crime stuff, you have Bill English from the National Party attending sensible sentencing trust events and Labour defending itself and proposing some tough on crime legislation. So that was very similar too. Yeah, most certainly. But but actually, you know, from there, if you think about it though, there have been some changes to some degree. You know, back then... The Sensible Sentencing Trust was the the second or third paragraph in every single crime and justice article saying um, crack down. And so we have had some reprieve from this. And there was some hope that there may be a consensus, actually driven in in, in part by Bill English, if you remember, was talking about prisons being a a moral and fiscal failure. Um, But that void hasn't been particularly well filled, I would argue. And so we've seen the politicians revert to kind um, and... And the reason for that, of course, on the hustings is that it, it, it proves to be very successful. The public does respond to it. Yeah, do you think, because this, this report, Jonathan, was actually written in a time of relative peace and it was in the middle of what Jared talks about. Yeah, I think um, if we look back to 1992, that was actually the peak of our, of our reported crime figures where we had 1,322 um, crimes per 10,000 people back then. It's not much more than half of that now, but you wouldn't know it from the 
peaks and troughs in public debate. And I think you can see the 96 election, you can see the 2002 election, you can see the 2011 election, and the way we're going, the 2023 election, where this law and order has come, come right to the fore. And so what you see, for instance, is a couple of big petitions. You know, There was a Life Means Life petition with 265,000 signatures, I think, um, in, in the early 90s after the death of um, teenager Kylie Smith. And uh, then, of course, there was the Norm Withers petition um, after his elderly mother was beaten with an iron bar while she was minding his menswear shop. And he got together with Garth McVicar and Sensible Sentencing Trust came about. And suddenly um, it, you saw Labour forced, as they saw it, I guess, toughened up on parole and bail laws from there. But this time it's a combination of things like gang funerals and ram raids. Yeah, and we've seen these spikes in particular crimes before, especially youth crimes. Uh, when I was editor of the Sunday Star Times, I remember we were reporting week after week youth car chases, and they'd film themselves on YouTube. And for a while there, we thought this was an escalating problem that that you know the New Zealand and public policy makers couldn't see a way out of. But you know what? It just kind of, the teenagers just kind of moved on. They just kind of lost enthusiasm for it. There were some uh, policing solutions, but largely they just moved on to new things. I don't want to downplay ram raids at all because if you're a jewellery store owner or a dairy owner, these are traumatic and brutal and scary. But that they are a spike rather than a rather than a, a permanent development in in New Zealand law and order. What is it about this kind of tough on crime catch cry that's so irresistible to our politicians and to large segments of the media? The reason it's um, irresistible um, is because it works. Um, politically, it is incredibly effective. It's incredibly easy to, um, you know, to, to bang your, your fist into your palm and say, um, let's crack down on, the, on these criminals. You can say that in a sound bite, sounds good on the tally. But the more complex solutions um, take a hell of a lot more explanation. And so they don't get the cut through in the media. Is there a feedback loop that develops as well? I'm looking at the role of the media. So there's something like ram raids that spikes, it gets media coverage, crime coverage increases, people get more afraid of crime, they click on crime stories, more crime stories are provided, and it kind of escalates like that? Yeah, look, without question. And, and I mean, dishonesty offence is by far the most significant, uh, by, uh, by quantity, the most significant crimes in New Zealand. But th- those aren't the ones that are reported, of course, the ones that are reported are the most sensational. Um, and so we get these low-frequency crimes that are reported in incredibly high frequency. And so it's no surprise that um, people have the perception that things are going to hell in a handbasket. In fact, we can see that through surveys that have been done of the public, that when asked uh, which way are crime rates trending, the public always overestimates the amount of crime. But interestingly, if you ask them about crime in their own community that they know that they that they can sort of see and experience, um, they tend to be far more accurate. Um, but so it's always in other places, and because they learn about other places, of course, through the media. So there is an issue here, um, without question. And this is where I think the role of the media is critically important, and um, and I and my colleagues really need to act responsibly. Pretty much every media organisation I know has written into its core principles that we will, you know, work together to try and contribute constructively to our communities. And this is a real chance for us to do so. The impact of crime is devastating on the victims, on the communities. 
um, uh, the communities of the offenders, um, often often the same communities. But the impact of living in fear of crime can be harmful as well. I think the media has a really important role to play in putting this in perspective. A lot of older people feel they can't leave their homes, feel they're in danger in their own homes. Um, in fact, we know from the statistics that they're probably less likely to be victims of crime. We need to be explaining that clearly. And Hayden, you talked earlier about um, this report being written in a sort of a lull between elections, between law and order panics. Those are opportunities for us to have these discussions in the media, to take it a bit slower, look at the data, to look at the evidence, to not be driven by the latest crime, the latest scare. But, for instance, last night, two people were shot on Queen Street. Pretty shocking event. You're, of course, going to cover it if you're the media. But the reality is, in context, it's probably a very, like a fringe event, basically. And most of the call-outs that police went to last night were probably domestic violence. The media isn't going to cover every domestic violence event. They are going to cover the Queen Street shootings. How do you get around the distorting effect that that has on people... Uh, we've suggested, uh, David Fisher and I, they, um, uh, when we wrote this report, we've suggested uh, that media organisations, with the support from um, justice agencies, put together a bit of a toolkit to support. If you're the late night reporter um, uh, uh, in, a, in a daily media organisation, you need to know how big a problem is violence. Is this a... Is this a problematic area where uh, where it's happening is it a gang issue is it um we can enable them to do a better job and not blow stuff out of proportion i mean i I recall the um grace malane killing for example which was covered incredibly heavily but the, the 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 chances of being killed in that way in new zealand among that demographic is so entirely low um, but when when you continually get peppered with them, people will change. Um, it does change the way people feel about their community and change their um, behaviours. And so context and that show what the general trends are is incredibly important. But this is not easy, right? I mean, I'd spend my life studying this stuff and it's sometimes hard for me to put it into context because sometimes the data itself can be misleading. So, for example, if you look at domestic violence, which frankly I would argue is the is the, the most significant issue facing New Zealand really because so much flows from it. But those data are trending up and have been for, for many, many, many years. Those data don't suggest that the rates of domestic violence are increasing. It actually shows that we're just taking it far more seriously than we once did. So even there where you've got the data, um, and the trend is clear, it's actually not representing what's occurring. And so you need to find some clean data sets that aren't affected by changes to attitudes or changes to policing. And the murder rate is, a, is an incredibly good one for that because the defini- definition doesn't change over time. All murders are reported. Um, and what we can see there is really clear um, decreases over time since the late 80s or the, or the early uh, 1990s, um, and on a per head of population basis, they've dropped quite significantly. Well, I don't think there'd be, there would be very, very few people in the country that would um, that would appreciate that fact. Is there an extent, though, to which providing context uh, can would be perceived as insensitive in a way? I mean, it can be perceived as sticking up for offenders or minimising the pain suffered by victims. I don't think that context diminishes victims at all, and I don't think anybody would want to do that. But it just puts it, um, it just 
yeah, I just think it, it adds a greater clarity to the to the overall picture. But you do raise a good point there, Hayden. And um, I, if I come to one of the um, comments we made in our report, we suggested that corrections needs to open up greater access and trust journalists more to talk to people involved in the um, corrective um, process, including inmates, including prisoners and people on um, on parole or on bail or on home detention, then the responsibility for us as journalists is to tell their stories fully. And yes, you're right, Hayden, that may seem like we're giving them a platform um, at the expense of victims. We should be telling the victims' stories, and I think we do, but we should also be telling the offenders' stories, and we should be following them through and where they are rehabilitating. Because at present, um, the public perception, I think, is that um, if we just chuck people in, uh, in prison out of sight and out of mind, we don't have to think about them anymore. I can see, I can hear people responding to this, though, maybe at home, you know, we've tried things your wishy-washy way. We've tried breaking the cycle sure. and getting people out of prisons, and we've got a crime spike on our hands. When three strikes came into New Zealand, I looked at the US where obviously that had been put in play. And the states where they were cracking down on crime the hardest, let's get, get tough on time on crime approach, was very uneven across the, the, the different states in America, yet the crime trends were remarkably similar. So there didn't seem to be a causative um, effect to that. And actually, I was just speaking with Tracy, Professor Tracy McIntosh just the other day about this very issue, and she was talking about some research that was done after the GFC when... California was basically bankrupt and they just released huge swathes of prisoners um, out of their prisons because they simply couldn't afford to, to hold them. And it had, an, it had a negligible impact um, on, um, on crime rates. So it's so while it look, it seems intuitive, um, like many things in this space, um, actually it's not. Um, there are far more uh, complex factors at play. Have we done an adequate job in the media, particularly this election, in communicating that complexity, the complexity of this topic? No, we haven't. And I, no, we have not. And Jonathan was um, touched on this. That Look, I work with a huge number of offenders, um, particularly through um, court reports and the like, getting backgrounds of these people. Uh, the backgrounds are such that they would make make most people feel rather queasy um, because they, these, these people have had unbelievably terrible upbringings of violence, um, of neglect. As, as kids, we would see them as victims. And it's, but, but when they offend, um, then they suddenly just become offenders and we see them solely in those terms. Now, that is not for one second apologising for the behaviour, because sometimes that's uh, horrific in itself, of course. But unless we understand where these people are coming from and those drivers of crime, um, then we will never get the crux of this issue because we have to tackle those. Now, we need to understand um, and portray in the media the backgrounds of some of these offenders to understand where the hell they're coming from. And, Jared, you highlight a good point there, but you maybe if we could develop a greater degree of trust between media and um, justice officials, courts officials, corrections officials, police, if we can develop that uh, trust, if media had access to some of those reports, and I think of, like, for instance, the cultural reports into sentencing that we've heard so, for sentencing that we've heard so much about over the last few years. If media had greater access to uniform and relevant information um, that helped explain offending, that helped um, um, explain sentencing, we could do a better job. And that is one of the points that David Fisher and I make in our, our report. That this is a two-way street. Yes, journalists 
can and should and want to do better. We want to provide more context, but we also need the um, institutions of uh, the state institutions of law and order to come to the party as well. Are they not coming to the party? It's been a long-standing challenge of um, uh, getting access. Um, I, t- I talked about uh, getting access to um, prisoners and those inside the correction system. Uh, I'll, g- I'll give you an example. Journalists are constantly grappling with suppression orders. We don't want to name someone who's got name suppression, but the courts can't or won't tell us whether somebody's got name suppression or not. It's that kind of simple, uniform information that we need to do a better job you suggested that I think that politicians took a slightly cynical approach in sort of key elections and ramping up the law and order factor. I actually do believe that politicians and journalists and most of the members of the public are pretty well motivated. I think our hearts are in the right place, but sometimes our heads aren't very well informed. I think that's true of all of us. Um, and if journalists and politicians can step back and take a more, make a greater effort to inform themselves rather than just going on gut, I think we can do a better job for our communities. How do you do it? Because obviously, whether it's cynical or whether it's just that they haven't kept abreast of all of the research that people like Jared do, there's going to be politicians of all stripes selling a crackdown on crime every election. So how do you even respond to that? in the media, if you have kept, can you just add the context or do you just not report the straight comments that you're getting? Part of the um, uh, part of the solution that we've pr- proposed is putting together a toolkit that um, you know gives journalists access to quick and easy and um, and accurate information that's relevant. Uh, you know what. What are the violent crime statistics doing? What are violent crime victimisation doing versus reported crime? I was listening to a broadcast comment a little while ago and the broadcaster um, was criticising the former Justice Minister Kerry Allen um, who had held up a chart in Parliament showing declining crime figures. And the broadcaster said, don't throw numbers at us, you're disrespecting the the pain, the fear that people are suffering from crime. Don't throw uh, uh, throw numbers at us. Well, I don't think that's the right response. I think we need to take an evidenced approach. We do need to step back. We do need to be a little bit cool and distant and aloof sometimes and say, what's really happening here? Responding to emotion only heightens fear, and that's damaging to people as well. Fear. And that's why the three of us are sitting here and having this conversation and why... Dozens, even hundreds of other journalists I know are out there in the community trying to report crime in a responsible, contextualised way. The consequences of getting it wrong are too bad to think about. There's a section in the report detailing all the cliched words we use about crime, like horrific, tragic, blood spattered, slaughter, outrage, and it urges journalists to find other terms if these ones aren't actually accurate. Now, why do you think that's important? What I'd say first is we wrote this report three years ago now. Things have actually improved. I think New Zealand's media has calmed down a little bit. I think we're um, a little bit less prone to the shouty reporting of crime. Uh, And I think I could speak for David Fisher as well. The two of us who reported on crime and Sunday papers and, you know, and sometimes ways we that now we wouldn't be very proud of. We've made some of these mistakes. We're talking from experience. Um, And um, I think we can see now that we are 
working together as a journalistic community to try and um, dampen down the rhetoric a little bit. Why do you think you wouldn't be proud of some of the stuff you or David Fisher did in your roles in the past? Well, I better not speak for David anymore. <laughs> but um, speaking, speaking for myself, I think some of us probably subscribed, and I'm talking 20, 25 years ago now, um, to that terrible old mantra, if it bleeds, it leads. We knew that crime reporting uh, was something that people could relate to. It felt close to home. I think we didn't appreciate at the time that we were actually making it feel closer to home. Well, look, firstly, there's we have a tremendous amount of crime coverage. So around 20% of all articles are related somehow to crime and justice. Well, that is a remarkable um, proportion of the news. Because unless 31% you're yourself, the report says in 2016. Um, but well, there you go. Um, nobody's lives are dominated to that degree by crime, right? Um, and so it, it probably is over-reported. But then, so, and, and, and then we, we mix into this, and I mean, the, the media environment is difficult because media do need clicks, right? So you've got your, your, you're battling against that as well. But then you, we also tend to have a, um, and, and Jonathan might speak better to this, but we also have this tendency to report a tremendous amount of um, international crime as well, as if we don't have enough here to to cover. We, we, we bang some more in, which I think just adds another layer to this. But look, the, the, the number one issue for me, I think, if, if, if there was just one thing to do, we've, we've talked about it a lot here, it would be just adding that all-important context, putting these things into a perspective of longer-term trends, um, whether or not these are, 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 are one-offs um, or, or that there is a cluster that perhaps we need to um, need to address. I think that would go a long way um, to solving, to to making the reporting um, more sober um, uh, in, and intellectual and moving it from the gut to the brain. There's a, another big theme in the report is the over-representation of Māori in the criminal justice system, uh, how to report that. One thing this report covers is the over-representation of Māori in crime figures and uh, how to cover uh, that and uh, and respectfully and actually include Māori perspectives in our reporting. To what extent does the lack of diversity in our newsrooms and our lack of connection to Pōra uh, and our lack of connection to Pōra often Māori communities contribute to some inadequacies in our crime coverage? Yeah, this is something we really struggled with, Hayden. I, I, I think a key point to make is that more than 50% of New Zealand's prison inmates identify as Māori. How do you report that? How do you report that without without stigmatising Māori, without making um, encouraging the public to think that um, Māori are more likely to be criminal, that they're more likely to be the problem? Um, what we do know is that um, there's something uh, like 5,400 inmates who are Māori. If they were, if the numbers were proportionate to their um, how many of there are in the population? There are only be fewer than seven hundred, um, so it's a real problem. Um, and, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, part of the answer is employing more Māori journalists who understand Te Ao Māori better, because we're not very good at it. We've got a lot of Pākehā reporters in our newsrooms. We've got a lot of Pākehā leadership in our new, in newsrooms. We all know we need to do better if we're going to actually um, report um, and offer insights um, into all our communities better. 
You actually, in the report, suggest uh, a separate work stream developed exploring an ethics of journalism grounded in a New Zealand context. This is actually by Aaron Smale. Uh, I think that he suggests that you could include that in Tamangai Paho's Māori media sector shift review. And they've actually, I mean, they've completed that review now. Did it take that suggestion into account at all? Was that part of it? Yeah, Aaron Smell is a colleague of mine at Newsroom. He's a very experienced Māori journalist. Uh, he's done a lot of work around um, contributors to criminal offending and um, pipeline, um, intergenerational pipeline that's um, getting Māori in trouble with the law and, and how we can get out of that. Um, he has a number of suggestions. Um, some of them, as I said, are around um, greater diversity in our um, newsrooms, but also just not writing for an audience that we assume is sort of middle class in Pakeha, which, to be blunt, I think a lot of a lot of our media organisations do. Um, we 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 need to tell stories that are relevant to a wider range of communities, not just tell stories that we think newspaper buyers in Rimuru area or Kandala want to read. It's a good note to end it on. Thank you very much, Jonathan and Jared. That was Jonathan Milne, the editor of the online news service for subscribers Newsroom Pro, and Dr Jared Gilbert, an expert in crime and justice, who's the director of the consultancy Independent Research Solutions and a sociologist at the University of Canterbury and a columnist for the New Zealand Herald. Dr Gilbert was also a member of the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group and back in 2018 he commissioned that report written by Jonathan Milne and New Zealand Herald senior reporter David Fisher. The report's called Developing Good Practice in Criminal Justice and Journalism but so far it hasn't been published by the Ministry of Justice. And you can hear more of what they had to tell Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about the reporting of crime and punishment in New Zealand in the extended version of this item that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed.